Could photobiomodulation soon be a therapeutic option for patients with dry AMD? Researchers in the LightSide 3 study are working to find out. I'm Greg Notstein here with Scott Chriswanis, and this is New Retina Radio's coverage of the Arvo 2022 meeting from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. We spoke with Dr. Marion Monk about details from a study evaluating the Valeda light delivery system in patients with dry AMD. Were patients able to safely realize any improvement to visual function? And we checked in with Dr. Roger Goldberg, who detailed the 18-month findings of the Derby and Oaks studies, a pair of phase three clinical trials evaluating the safety and efficacy of pegcitocopline in patients with geographic atrophy. The study's primary endpoint was at one year. What did they find after an additional six months? Stick here to find out. The first treatment for wet AMD was approved in 2004. The field is still awaiting an approved treatment for geographic atrophy, but promising momentum and reliable data suggest that we'll have an option for those patients soon. But what about a treatment for the condition immediately preceding wet AMD and GA? That is, what if there were a therapy for patients with dry AMD? Photobiomodulation may be an option for this patient population, to learn more about the LightSide 3 study, which assessed the safety and efficacy of photobiomodulation in patients with dry AMD, we are joined today by Dr. Marion Monk. Dr. Monk practices at the University Hospital Bern in Bern, Switzerland. Dr. Monk, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a real pleasure. Let's start with a review of the Valeda light system itself. This is the platform for photobiomodulation that was used in the study. What is photobiomodulation and how exactly does a patient interact with the Valeda platform? So we know that patients with AMD have underlying mitochondrial dysfunction that contribute to the overall disease pathology. And photobiomodulation, also known as low-level light therapy, is an expanding medical technology in which exposure to low-level light is used to stimulate cellular function, leading to beneficial clinical effects. So PBM, um, in short, is uh, currently used and studied in many different areas. So for example, in physiotherapy, in arthritis, in bound repair, in sports medicine, and also in many other um, specialties. And also in AMD, photobiomodulation leverages the power of light to stimulate mitochondrial function by activating the mitochondrial cytochrome C oxidase. And what is also important that each wavelength used in PBM has its own purpose, and also the what, where, and how is much, it's very, it's very critical. The Valeda light delivery system is a piece of tabletop equipment that is actually smaller than an OCT device, but similar to using an OCT, the patient really has to lean forward into the device and they receive the treatment that lasts about um, four to five minutes per eye. And in this Valeda light delivery system, we have three different wavelengths included, um, which are 850, 660, and 590 nanometers. And each of them were selected based on the cellular targets and importance in AMD. So for example, the 850 
it drives the electron transfer, it stimulates metabolic activity and inhibits inflammation and cell death. In contrast, 660 nanometers promotes the O2 binding, stimulates metabolic activity and inhibits inflammation and cell death. And last but not least, the 590 nanometers, which is thought to inhibit VGF expression and promotes the nitric oxide generation. And there's already a body of evidence gathered from the LightSight 1, LightSight 2, and also the electrolyte study. And the LightSight 3 continues the data gathering mission. So let's talk about LightSight 3. What was the structure of the study? Yeah, so it was a randomized double-mask multicenter clinical trial, which was performed in the U.S. It kind of had a sister clinical trial, the LightSight 2 trial, which was uh, also a multicenter double-mask um, clinical trial, but this was performed in Europe. And the LightSight 3 trial included 148 eyes of 100 patients, and they all had dry AMD, and most of them had immediate AMD. So... Um, so therefore, um, it's not, uh, um, it's, uh, of course, um, the, the, the mean time from the diagnosis of AMD was not quite long. It was in mean 4.9 years. And uh, eight, the majority of the patients, um, eight, about um, 90%, were on ARID supplementation. And also what is important to note is that mean baseline visual acuity was very good, around 70 letters. And um, in this clinical trial, the patients were randomly assigned to the treatment or the sham group in a two-to-one ratio. How often were patients treated in the study? Yeah, so the study, um, just to, to let you know, is still ongoing, but the patients are treated every four months. So they are receiving six series over a period of 24 months, and each series comprised nine or comprises nine treatment sessions over the course of three to four weeks. And uh, there was then now an interim analysis after the fourth series, so about 13 months after the initiation of the study. And these are the data we are actually discussing today. And here in the LightSight 3, we examined the safety outcomes, the clinical outcomes, and the imaging outcomes at, at this time point. And the clinical outcomes were a, a lot of primary and secondary outcomes included best corrective visual acuity, but also low luminance, BCVA, contrast sensitivity, the reading speed, the color vision, perimetry, and also quality of life questionnaires. But of course, also imaging parameters um, based on OCT, autofluorescence, and color fundus images, which were assessed by a mask reading center. All right, those are a lot of data points. Tell me about the data points that you specifically showcased at Arvo this year. But like I said, until now, the data are still being analyzed. And at the time of AVO, only the safety and the data of the primary endpoint BCVA were available. And uh, the research team actually observed that photobiomodulation resulted in a statistically significant improvement in BCVA in dry MD patients compared with SHAM at months 1, 5, 8, 9, 12, and 13. So this means that actually six of the seven pre-specified time points saw a significant improvement in best corrective visual acuity. And at month 13, the patients in the treatment arm demonstrated a mean of 5.5 letter game from baseline, which was statistically significant. And what is also interesting is that actually 55% of the PBMIs responded with a more than five letter gain 
with a mean of 9.7 letters. And um, which is also very interesting that over 26% of the PBMIs responded with a more than 10 letter gain with a mean of, uh, of about 12.8 letters. And um, when, when you think about this visual acuity improvement, you have to keep in mind that the patients already had quite good vision at baseline, like I said, in mean 70 letters. So there's not so much improve, room of improvement here. And also what is very important, and this is, of course, the most important thing, is that the safety profile was consistent with patient population and was very favorable. So what does all of this mean for the future of photobiomodulation? Is this something that we might see in clinics in the U.S.? So um, the Valeda ECE market at the, in the European Union already and just recently got approval in Brazil and is therefore already available in some locations outside of the U.S. But uh, the company, which is called Lumithera, is in progress to file with the FDA in order to receive approval for the use in the United States as well. And of course, the LightSet 3 data will be an important part of that filing. What is also important is that the LightSet 1 trial has already shown that as soon as center involving GA with poor vision is present, PBM, of course, has only a very limiting effect. So it seems that it is especially interesting to treat earlier forms of dry MD with shorter disease duration, like um, in the patient population we've seen in the LightSide 3 trial. What's next for LightSide 3? Should we expect to see anything soon? Yes, of course. I mean, we have just presented the primary endpoint and here only the top line data. So there will be definitely more data presentation forthcoming at future conferences, of course, including presentations of secondary endpoints such as contrast sensitivity, low luminance, visual acuity, drusen volume, etc. at the 30 month time point. And then, of course, we will hopefully present very soon the end of study data at month 24. And what may be also interesting is there will be a LightSide 3 extension study. So the patient will be observed and, uh, and controlled and will receive additional treatment for a longer period of time. That's a lot to look forward to. Dr. Monk, thanks for coming on the show and summarizing these data. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. It's almost here, we hope a therapy for treating geographic atrophy. I say almost here because we're still waiting on FDA to confirm that the drug, Pegsetacoplan, is safe and effective, and we're still awaiting an announcement of submission to the FDA anyway. To make that determination, regulatory bodies will review data from the pivotal Phase three Derby and Oaks studies. Dr. Roger Goldberg presented the 18-month findings from those studies at this year's ARVO annual meeting. Dr. Goldberg practices with Bay Area Retina Associates in, you guessed it, the Bay Area. Dr. Goldberg, welcome to New Retina Radio. Thanks, guys. It's it's uh, great to be here with you. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller, so great to be here. Pegsetacoplan is a C3 inhibitor. For those listeners who need a refresher on what that means, can you quickly explain the relationship between C3 and the development of geographic atrophy? Yeah, so um, the complement system is a complex biological system that's part of our, you know, immune system to fight off, you know, foreign pathogens. And many studies that have looked at age-related macular degeneration, whether 
you know, early AMD, you know, intermediate or late stages of AMD, which include both the wet and uh, advanced dry former geographic atrophy, have implicated the complement cascade really actually throughout that whole uh, spectrum of age-related macular degeneration. The complement cascade can get activated in a couple different ways. Um, the, what's called the manoselectin binding pathway, the classical pathway, or the alternative pathway. And all of those pathways actually converge on this central molecule, uh, which is C3. These, these, a lot of these molecules are given such neat names as complement factor one, complement factor two, complement factor three, and so on and so forth, the comp all the way down to complement factor number nine, plus a whole series of letters as well. So they don't always have the uh, kind of sexiest names, but C3 is the, is the center point in the convergence of all of these different uh, pathways that all come together, meet at C3, that then gets activated and leads to downstream inflammation, activation of, of MAC or the membrane attack complex, uh, opsonization, which is a way of like tagging um, tagging for destruction, uh, for, you know, for, for typically, I mean, again, men for foreign, foreign pathogens, but so by targeting C3, you know, it, it makes you a little bit agnostic as to which pathway you might think is, you know, you know, responsible for, for the development of geographic atrophy, this advanced form of AMD. And so it's a really kind of a pivotal central point um, uh, you know, in, in AMD pathogenesis. And so perhaps by targeting and inhibiting C3, we'll be able to slow or stop the progression of geographic atrophy. Thanks for the refresher. Let's move on to the drug itself, Pegsetacoplan. The phase two Philly study met its primary endpoint, uh, and that was Pegsetacoplan therapy resulting in a statistically significant reduction in growth of geographic atrophy versus sham over 12 months. Can you tell us about the phase three Derby and Oaks studies, which were much bigger? Sure. Yeah. So the, um, they, they were actually structured in many ways, very similar to the Philly study. Obviously the Philly study was a, you know, still pretty large for a phase two study with 240 patients thereabout. Uh, but the results of Philly is what really prompted the development of this global phase three program, uh, which were two twin studies, Oaks and Derby, uh, which with about 600 patients per study, I think over 1200 patients enrolled between the two, there were 200 sites globally and patients were randomized to pegcetacoplan monthly, pegcetacoplan every other month or sham treatment. And the primary endpoint was at 12 months, and this was the change in total area of the GA lesion based on fundus autofluorescence. The end of the study is at month 24, and that's when we're going to get a lot of those functional endpoints looking at visual acuity and low luminance vision and reading speed and microperimetry. Uh, but uh, Apellus uh, shared, and, and they are cobbling together for their FDA package, you know, all the available data. And so they had available the 18-month data. How are patients doing 18 months into the trial? And that's what we were able to share here uh, at Arvo for the first time. Before we get to that 18-month data, can you tell us about the primary endpoint results? Sure. So uh, as discussed, the primary endpoint uh, was at the 12-month interval. 
And Peg Santa Copeland, uh, both monthly and every other month, met the primary endpoint in Oaks, but not in the Derby trial. In Oaks, Peg Santa Copeland reduced uh, the growth in GA lesion size by 16% in the every other month arm and 21% in the uh, monthly arm. Those are highly statistically significant. In the Derby arm, uh, the reduction was 11 and 12%, um, which uh, although uh, it does show a reduction, those did not meet the pre-specified significance of 0.05. I think it was about 0.06 for monthly and about 0.08 for every other month. So close on Derby, but only met the primary endpoint in Oaks. Roger, can you also talk about when you pulled the data together? Because as I understand it, when uh, Derby and Oaks were pulled together, they did demonstrate a significance? Yeah, so at month 12, when you look kind of at all 1,200 plus patients, uh, it was a 14 and 16% reduction uh, with every other month at 14% monthly at 16% reduction. And those uh, both had, you know, what what they call a nominal p value of point, you know, le- way less than 0.05 on the order of 0.001. Now that's called a nominal p value because it's although this was a uh, pre-specified analysis that they were doing, it wasn't part of uh, what's called the statistical hierarchy, so they don't have to kind of expend any alpha. Uh, to look at the combined data set. So that's what they call a nominal p-value. And so together it was a significant reduction in GA lesion size at month 12, uh, but individually uh, only Oaks met the uh, met the primary endpoint and Derby uh, missed the primary endpoint. What happened as we move further out, say to the 18 months? Yeah, so here I think this is pretty exciting. And again, these are all gonna be nom- what they call nominal p-values again, because it's not part of the, um, although, although they were pre-specified, they weren't part of the statistical hierarchy. But what's neat is when you look at the growth curves of the geographic atrophy, what we see is that the growth curves continue to separate. And uh, so it, it, in Oaks, there was a 16% and 22% reduction in GA lesion growth at month 18. And in Derby, uh, it was 12 and 13% reduction versus sham. And all of those have nominal p-values well below 0.05. And I think more importantly is just visually, obviously this is an audio podcast, but visually when you look at these curves, we see continued separation of those curves and the separation represents an increasing amount of preserved retinal tissue. Um, Because we know that where there's hypoautofluorescence, where there's geographic atrophy, you've lost the retinal pigment epithelium and the overlying photoreceptors. And when you looked at the combined data set, you had asked me uh, earlier, Scott, about the combined data set. And at at month 18, we also see kind of in the combined data set, widening of those curves. So altogether, it was 15% reduction with every other month and 17% reduction uh, with monthly at month 18 in the combined population of both Derby and Oaks. I understand that the researchers looked at the reduction in lesion growth versus sham at three segments during months one to six, six to 12, and then 12 to 18. What did they find? Yeah, this is, I think, a a very interesting analysis to me. Actually, this was, you know, in many respects, the most interesting um, part because 
Oaks uh, showed a fairly consistent um, reduction in GA lesion growth between months zero to six, then between months six and 12, and then between months 12 and 18. And it was around 16% for every other month. And, you know, kind of around, let's call it 20, 22% for uh, monthly peg cetacoplin. In Derby, in, month, in the first six months, and when you look at just overall the Derby curves, we see that peg cetacoplin arms versus sham are, are nearly overlapping. And so when you look at just the GA lesion growth in those first six months, it was only eight and 6% reduction in every other month and monthly peg cetacoplin. Not very impressive. And I think those first six months, frankly, is why the primary endpoint didn't meet in Derby. We actually see then when you break it out in six month segments, that Derby actually starts to perform from month six and you know, month six to 18, but in the two segments, month six to 12, and then months 12 to 18, it really actually starts to perform akin to how Oaks performed, which is around a you know, 16, 17 percent reduction in GA lesion growth in those six-month segments. So to my mind, that's a little heartening. And then when you combine the Oaks and Derby populations and look at the, you know, all 1,200 patients, months zero to six, six to 12, and 12 to 18, we see basically an increasing magnitude of effect over time. So the benefit of treatment actually grows over time. So it's a more modest 12 or 13% in, in the first uh, six months, and then it jumps to 16 to 18% in, in month six to 12, and then jumps from 17 to 21% in months 12 to 18. And so I like seeing kind of increasing preservation of retinal tissue over time, a more pronounced effect, and a more clean kind of what I call dose response curve, where every month treatment does perform a little bit better than every other month exetacoplin. Let's talk about lesion location. What relationship does the location of the lesion have to do with the success seen in Derby and Oaks? Uh, so great question. Um, we know that extrafoveal GA grows at a faster rate than foveal GA. And so the magnitude of the effect of pegsetacoplin was more pronounced in the extrafoveal lesions than in the foveal lesions. And that's great because, you know, what that means is, geez, in our fastest growing, um, fastest growing lesions, we can have a bigger impact. And frankly, you know, the fovea is the part of the retina we're most eager to preserve um, in geographic atrophy, because obviously that represents the patient's kind of finest central vision. So in, uh, uh, Oaks and Derby, um, at month 12, there was a 21 and 34% reduction at month 12 in Oaks in the every other month and monthly arms. In Derby, it was uh, 17 and 25% reduction at month 12. And then yeah, month 18, again, those curves continue to separate. So in Oaks, it went to 17 and 33%. And again, just visually, you can see the curves continuing to separate. In Derby, it expanded to 17 and 23% reduction uh, in the extrafoveal population. You know, we just said that extrafoveal lesions grow faster and there was a more pronounced effect 
in both Oaks and Derby at both month 12 and month 18 in the extra foveal population. Obviously, the, you know, the converse of that is that the foveal lesions, they tend to grow more slowly. It frankly is harder to show you know, a large magnitude of effect in more slow growing lesions. And so in Oaks uh, at month 12, there was a 16% reduction in the foveal population. In Derby, it was actually just a 2% and 6% reduction uh, versus uh, versus sham in the, at month 12. And then when we look out to, uh, excuse me, month 18 in the foveal population, again, it is actually nice to see, particularly in Oaks, that there is divergence of the curves at 18 and 19% reduction of month 18. In Derby, it did increase um, slightly at month 18 to, to uh, 9% in the monthly arm and 4% in the other every other month. And actually, when you look at the combined population in Oaks and Derby for the foveal group, and now this is kind of basically taking all um, you know, all, all, all comers in the trial who had foveal involving lesions, we actually should see that even in these most difficult to treat foveal involving lesions, there was a 13% reduction in the combined population at month 18. And those did have a nominal p-value, you know, of significance less than 0.05. Obviously, 13% is not as impressive in the combined population of extra foveal lesions. We saw a 21 and 26% reduction in growth um, at month 18. Uh, but still, it's nice to see that pegcetacoplan is having an impact even in the foveal population. Let's talk about safety before we wrap up. Is there anything to note at the 18-month time point? Yeah, so uh, great question. I think kind of the things you know worth uh, discussing in general, I say pegcetacoplan was very well tolerated and had an excellent safety profile in this trial. The, the uh, safety issue that, you know, I think gets the most bandwidth uh, on programs like this and in, and in discussions just with other retina specialists is this rate of exudation, because we know in Philly there was a high rate of exudative AMD. Um, and so uh, uh, Apellis uh, updated um, the safety profile and the rate of exudation uh, for month 18. And so it was great to get to present that. Now they defined exudation as, you know, uh, whether whether the investigator called it neovascular AMD or CNV, you know, they just lumped both of those adverse events into, into a term they call exudative AMD. And also the reading center was given uh, an opportunity at month 12 and at month 24 to determine um, whether they saw any evidence of choroidal neovascularization that the investigators had missed. And so the rate of exudation in the monthly, every other month, and sham arms were 9.5%, 6.2%, and 2.9% at month 18. Now, these are all a little bit higher than, than the numbers reported at month 12, which was 6%, 4%, and 2.5%. But when you actually look at kind of the rate of exudative AMD per 100 patient years, and this is a way to normalize the rate of exudative AMD, you know, over time, because the exposure obviously to the medicine and to treatment changes over time. We see that the month 12 and the month 18 data are very similar. There is a uh, dose dependent response. There is 
um, more exudative AMD in the monthly, a little bit less in every other month and still less in the sham arms at around 6.6, 4.4 and 2.6 um, cases per hundred patient years. So, um, so much, much lower than we saw in Philly. And thankfully we don't see an accelerating rate between month 12 and month 18. Really the rate stays about the same. What about intraocular inflammation? Any concerns there? There were uh, 21 events of intraocular inflammation uh, observed in 18 patients. This was a rate of 0.23%. Again, very consistent to the rate of 0.22% per injection that we saw in the month 12 data. And I should mention that, that those of those 21 cases, four are from the original um, kind of the start of the trial when there was a drug impurity um, and uh, they uh, rejiggered the manufacturing process. And thankfully we haven't seen any issues with uh, drug purity uh, since then. Um, but if you exclude those four cases, then the rate of inflammation per injection was just 0.19%. And I should mention that all of these are kind of well within the norm for um, you know, for our approved uh, anti-VEGF drugs for the wet form of macular degeneration. Thankfully, no cases of retinitis or vasculitis. These are both things that, you know, retina specialists um, from the Brolicizumab launch were kind of highly uh, attuned to and, and want to know that data. And there have been no cases of retinitis or vasculitis, thankfully. And then what do you think is next for Pegsetic Copeland? Is there an expected date for some moves that are forthcoming? Uh, well, you know, I just know what the, the company has announced. They've announced that they plan to submit, um, you know, their NDA to the FDA in the second quarter. Uh, they have not announced that they've actually submitted the, their, you know, regulatory package. So I don't know if they've done it yet or not. But they haven't announced it, and then I, you know, my, it's my understanding it can take up to about six months for the FDA to re review that package. So I think, kind of, a best case scenario, we might uh, have an answer and hopefully a treatment uh, by the end of uh, the fourth quarter of this year. Dr. Goldberg, thanks for coming on New Retina Radio. So you bet. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap on our first installment of New Retina Radio Arvo 2022 coverage. If you're on a podcast app, you know how to subscribe. If you're listening on a desktop or mobile site, hop on your phone, navigate to your podcast aggregator of choice, and tap subscribe to get new downloads sent directly to your phone. We've got two more episodes of Arvo coverage coming your way. Stay tuned.